Heroes get remembered. Here's the windup. Legends never die. Fastball hits deep to right. This could be it. Way back there. Oh, Welcome to Hardball. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Major League Baseball's history in first person. Conversations that span almost 20 years. It is 9.46 p.m. With the men who saw and made that history. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Many of whom are no longer with us. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Stories from the 1930s. To the 21st century. This is Hardball. Dad, you want to have a catch? Welcome to Hardball. My name is Chris Domino, and this is our continued trip around Major League Baseball through the eyes and words of those who played the game. I appreciate you finding us, and today we will hear from another Hall of Famer whose story to the Hall, by the way, took more twists and turns than any I'd ever heard of, and ultimately passed away before he was able to hear the news of his own induction. If you're tuning in for the first time, thanks. I hope you find this episode interesting enough to have you go subscribe to receive a notification when we post a new one and have you go back and listen to previous conversations in the library. If you are already a subscriber, thanks again and appreciate any opportunity you have to spread the word to other baseball fans you may know. If you can take a second and rate and review if you listen on Apple, that will also help spread the word a little bit more. Very quickly, someone sent me a direct message on Twitter last week that I think summed up what I hope hardball is to some of you. A younger Yankee fan was told by a friend that he would enjoy the Bobby Richardson conversation as it included stories of the players that his father had told him about, Mickey, Yogi, Whitey, Billy, and certainly Casey. Too young to have seen them play, but enthralled by the stories themselves. His message to me was that he enjoyed the Richardson episode so much that he went back to listen to Phil Rizzuto and enjoyed that one enough to subscribe and go back to listen to every episode because he realized he didn't need to be a fan of a specific player or team. He's young enough where he didn't even see many of them actually play, and more importantly, it didn't matter what team or generation our guest played in was his conclusion. He just wanted to hear the stories and be, as he said, surprised by what he heard and ultimately learned. And, again, a quote, to be in a good mood when each episode was done, to love the game a little bit more. And that's it. Speaking of these gentlemen to document the history, their own and the games has been a blast for me. I hope you find it entertaining and really, again, informative. And today's guest, Hall of Famer Ron Santa, will not let you down because it's about to do just that. I caught up with Ron back in 2001 or 2002, and I remember being struck immediately, feeling very quickly that this was a man's man. Big voice, direct, matter of fact, but perhaps talking about himself in a way that he hadn't in a while and might actually enjoy. I could feel him lean into the phone, ready and willing and able to tell a story and answer directly the Hall of Fame question. I didn't know how rare his story actually was, how his diabetes diagnosis could have so easily derailed his career before it had even started, and how he turned that into bringing awareness to the disease and raised millions to fight it. How much he loved playing in Chicago, even if on the field it brought the type of emotional pain that not winning at all can bring, and how for 15 years he just, quote, did his job, and how that included being a two-way player that took so much pride in his defense that a statue ultimately outside of Wrigley isn't of him hitting one of his 342 home runs, but rather of him getting ready to throw across the diamond to record another out. How good could the man pick it? Five gold glove good. What kind of company did his combination of power and defense put him in? Unprecedented, as in there was no company. 
It wasn't a list. It was a name. His. 300 home runs and five gold gloves. Those third basemen in history, Ron Sano started it, and only Mike Schmidt and Scott Rowland have joined him so far. You will hear him speak of Ernie and Leo and arguably the best defensive infield of all time, and of course 1969, and how he came back to the game to become a beloved broadcaster for the Cubs, a quote, the single biggest Cubs fan of all time. And boy, did the man wear it on his sleeve every pitch of every game. He will tell you of the story of that path to Cooperstown, one I had never heard before. And I will tell you that when I heard of his passing in 2010, I immediately thought of three things. How his Cub team in 1969 played a part in my own baseball life, a six-year-old growing up in a Met house and believing that miracles can happen in this game. How his death meant that the gatekeepers to the hall did the man dirty and how he wouldn't see his day in Cooperstown and have the opportunity to thank those who helped him get there. And lastly, how if the Cubs found their way to a title, that elusive World Series championship moment and celebration would take place without him. And how life sometimes isn't fair because no one would have enjoyed it more than Ron Santo. Hey, what a catch by Santo. Steps on third, over to second for one. Throw that ball. They begin singing, bye-bye, Leo, bye-bye, Leo. We hate to see you go. Tonight on Hardball's Legends of the Game, we are joined by a gentleman we have not yet had the pleasure to speak to. Uh, certainly a big-time member of the Chicago Cubs team. Some people call it the best team to never win a World Series. We'll find out what Mr. Ron Santo himself thinks of that statement as he joins us tonight. Ron, how are you doing this evening? Uh, very good, Chris. Ron, I opened up the maybe the best team, the greatest team to never win a World Series, as you assess, and you're still in and around the game. Fair statement? Unfair statement? Well, I, I don't know. If, uh, you know, I, I look back on uh, 69 where I felt we were the best team uh, in the National League, and uh, we ended up uh, in second place, and the Mets ended up uh, winning that uh, division, beating Atlanta, and then... Uh, uh, going on to beat the Baltimore Orioles. So uh, I think uh, God lived in New York that year. <laughs> and a lot of people have talked about the how and why of that 69 season in particular. Yeah. We'll get to that in a couple of seconds. Let me ask you a few questions about yourself, though. Um, signed at, what, 18, right out of high school? Uh, yes. Where were you found, scouted? How did that uh, actually Seattle, Washington. Out? I was uh, born and raised. And uh, I was scouted there uh in fact, at that particular time, there were 16 major league teams. All 16 uh, were after me, and uh, uh, in those days, uh, uh, there were bonuses, not draft. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you you don't get drafted; uh, you just sign right out of high school. And, the infamous uh, bonus baby, I believe, at some point deemed to yeah. be the words they used. Uh, but uh, at that particular time, uh, uh, I had I, I spent. Like two days, uh, my stepfather and myself dealing with uh, scouts coming into town. And my first offer 
Uh, and I, you know, I I came from a area called uh, Garlic Gulch, which was a Rainier Valley area where the uh, uh, where we lived. And uh, so uh, my father, uh, my stepfather, uh, uh, owned a little cleaner's place, and uh, you know, I don't even know what his salary was <clears throat> per uh, year, but. Uh, uh, all the scouts came in, and the first offer was uh, $50,000 uh, to sign and $500 a month uh, to play in double-A ball. That was from the Cleveland Indians. So most, uh, most of the uh, teams that I met with offered me anywhere from fifty to $80,000. Um, and uh, I ended up signing with the Cubs for uh, 20000 now, if I'm going to do the math, that doesn't sound like it was the best deal possible. Why did you? Well, the, the, the reason for that is I had a uh, a scout that followed me, uh, uh, and uh, this particular scout, Dave Kosher, was a, a bird dog scout, and he followed me in high school, and he always felt I would make the major leagues, uh, and uh, I I just had a lot of confidence in him. I used to watch the game of the week. Uh, on TV, uh, National League on Saturday, American League on Sunday, but I used to watch the National League a lot more. There was something about Wrigley Field also. And I felt uh, my dad had, after we met with all the scouts, my dad said, um, uh, how do you feel about this and making the major leagues? And I said, I just want to make the major leagues. And the, the Cubs had the least amount of minor league clubs, and I just thought I had a better chance to make the major leagues uh, with the Cubs uh, quicker uh, than I would with any other team. And, Ron, going back about 40 years ago, you talked about all 16 teams knowing who you were. Yes. That kind of dismisses that notion if you're in a little place that long ago, they wouldn't find you. How? What kind of high school career did you actually have? And did you play some what would be deemed Babe Ruth or AAU ball to even get yourself uh, yeah, out a little bit more I, than in that? In fact, uh, uh, out of high school uh, – uh, during a high school career, I played semi-pro ball when I was a sophomore. So I I knew that I was talented. Uh, I didn't know, though, if I could make the major leagues, of course, but uh, I was always ahead of the game. I played, uh, when I was uh, 12 years old, I played Babe Ruth League and then American Legion and then semi-pro ball. And, Ron, a lot of people might know, and I didn't know this until I did some reading, you actually were diagnosed with diabetes. Yes. You played your major league career with diabetes, correct? Exactly. Uh, I was diagnosed at the age of 18 uh, with uh, what they call uh, juvenile diabetes, which is type 1 insulin-dependent diabetic, and uh, nobody has ever, in fact, when I was diagnosed, I asked the doctor, can I play baseball? And he said, Ron, I really don't know because we've never dealt with this. Now, had you signed your contract already, Ron? Was yes, this part of a physical? I had already signed a professional contract uh, when I, uh, you know, in those days, they checked your blood pressure and and everything you know an 18 years old six feet tall 165 pounds i uh you know i mean i felt i was healthy and uh and so did they so when i signed my contract my mother every year would have us have a physical every year and i walked into dr tupper's office and uh, uh had my physical they took blood and everything and uh they found sugar in the urine so uh, they told me they wanted me to go to a, a hospital to have a glucose tolerance test to find out if I'm a diabetic, and I found out I was. What were the ramifications? Uh, 
Well, actually, uh, when I found out and they told me that I was a diabetic, uh, I went to uh, the library and uh, read up on diabetes, and the first thing I read was life expectancy was 25 years. Uh, the number one cause uh, was, I mean, blindness, two was uh, kidney failure, and three was heart in the arteries. And I, uh, I was very scared about that, uh, but I spent a month in the hospital on a daily basis uh, of learning what diabetes was all about. So uh, I learned as much uh, about diabetes as a doctor knew, and I knew that exercise and regulate my insulin was the key to uh, diabetes. Was there experimental moments for you in that first couple of years? Well, four about? years, in yeah. fact. It took me four years to acclimate uh, to uh, what I, you know what I mean, um, making mistakes, day and night ball, uh, changing the times that I take the insulin. And I went through quite a bit uh, before I uh, could manage it real well. And even though I managed it well, I still feel... Uh, Chris, that through my career of uh, 15 years in the big leagues, uh, I put up some big numbers, but uh, there was no doubt in my mind that I had the ability to, that baseball was easy for me, but diabetes uh, made it a little more difficult because uh, there'd be days I'd be out there that my blood sugars were low, even though I couldn't tell, so I wasn't using all my mm -hmm. faculties. Uh, so I, uh, I'm not uh, I'm not making any excuses, but I do believe that if I didn't have diabetes, uh, the numbers I put up, uh, I probably would have put up bigger numbers and uh, probably uh, played longer. We are talking to Ron Sano tonight on the Legends of the Game hardball version, talking and trying to track down as many uh, guys who played in different eras as possible. Now, Ron, let's talk a little bit about the time that you played and who you played with. You come up June 26, 1960, Major League debut, correct? Yes. 20 years old. How'd you do that day? Uh, I went four for seven with five RBIs, and we beat the Pittsburgh Pirates. The, the Cubs were in a uh, uh, the Cubs were in a nine-game losing streak when they went into uh, uh, Pittsburgh, and uh, uh, I joined them on Saturday evening, and we had a double hitter, Bob Fran and Vernon Law, were the two pitchers. And of course, that year they won the World Series, and Vernon Law won 20. Mm -hmm. One games, I think, friend one nineteen, whatever it was. I faced friend the first time, and uh, I'll never forget. Uh, there was forty thousand fans in the stands, and my knees were shaking. My hands. I, I, I remember taking batting practice. I couldn't get a ball out of the cage. I was so nervous. But uh, uh, the first pitch was a breaking ball, and I kind of uh, backed off a little bit. And then Smokey Burgess was the catcher, and he threw the ball back to a friend and went right to my ear and said, that's a major league curveball kid. <laughs> and I stepped out like, holy cow. Welcome I, to the major leagues. Yeah, and I got back in and uh, hit a, I got a, hit a line drive on a fastball right up the middle, and it was like the world fell off my shoulders. And then I drove in five runs and a doubleheader. We won the doubleheader. Now, Ron, I must ask, was it a practice in 1960? Did you ask for that first ball did somebody pull it out how did that work back then what do you mean uh, the first base hit that you got uh no i did not ask for that ball uh but they did pull it out you know mm -hmm. first time up and uh 
and it was, you know, it was, of course, special, but I, wa- I was so nervous I wasn't even thinking about it. You know? Were you nervous enough, worried about the hole, I'm going to get picked off, I've got to make sure I don't want it too far? The uh, whole- no, no. Uh, once I got the base hit, uh, I just became myself. We're talking to Ron Sando tonight on Legends of the Game. Now, Ron, you talked about your career and your numbers, and I've been doing some reading when I knew that I wanted to contact you. I can say it. Will you say it? Do you belong in the Hall of Fame? Yeah, I feel uh, uh, I do. Uh, and, and the reason I say that uh, is the fact that when my career was coming to an end, uh, that's all the writers were talking about, that, that I had Hall of Fame numbers and I would be in the Hall of Fame. and. And then uh, when I uh, retired, and you know you got to wait five years, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I didn't even, Chris, I didn't even get five percent of the vote to get on the ballot. I was devastated, and I, I've always been a player that spoke my mind and and was an emotional type guy. I I was so devastated that I just sat back and I couldn't believe that I didn't get on. And, and then five years later, I get a letter. Five years later, and uh, after my first five years, that's 10 years I was out of the game and apologizing uh, the, the, uh, and, and reinstating me back on to the ballot. And then I had the 15 years, but... Uh, what was the apology? I mean... Uh, it was like uh, we, you know, we, we made a mistake, you know, <laughs> and... Uh, so now, that, now you're out of sight and out of mind for five years on top of the five mandatory. You think that's that, what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. You, you know, it it it's funny how uh, if if you're judged right away, I feel very strongly uh, that I was an impact player. I hit fourth my whole career. I hit between Billy Williams and Ernie Banks, and and uh, I and you know, and I and I was a consistent player. Uh, I made all the plays at third. As I told you, it was a. It was a gift, and uh, I played hard, and uh, I played the game the way it should be played. And uh, uh, the numbers that I put up are Hall of Fame numbers, as far as I'm concerned, uh, 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 of over 300 home runs and and averaging 90 RBIs a year. Which a lot of people, Ron, as I looked at your numbers, you know, it's easy sometimes to say, okay, what are the numbers in totality? But the one that really stuck out to me, and I don't know if this is the one that you would agree with me is the most least known fact. You averaged more RBIs a year than Mike Schmidt did for his career. Yeah. Now, do uh, you think, you think I don't know, one out of 10, one out of 20, one out of 50 baseball fans would know that? No. I don't think so either. No, and I, you know, and the other the other thing, Chris, is, uh, you know, when, when I first came up, uh, your peers voted, uh, mm-hmm. players voted if you're an all-star. I made all, nine all-star games, and and that that in itself is telling me what the players I played against thought of me. And five gold gloves on top of that, correct? And five gold gloves, yes. And uh, now I'm going to be eligible, Chris, next year for the Veterans Committee mm-hmm. for the first year. And these are my peers, so uh, I feel I feel uh, better about it. I was very disappointed I didn't make uh, the riders, but. But uh, also, would it almost be more special if the veterans yes, put you in? Absolutely, absolutely. And and uh, uh, there's only there's only I, I've had a, a, a wonderful career and a wonderful life. I've done well uh, outside of baseball. Uh, uh, when I retired, uh, 
Uh, I mean, to be honest with you, I had a two-year contract with the White Sox, uh, but the first year I was disappointed, uh, and I was only going to play a couple more years when I was traded. And I had the five and ten, which uh, uh, I exercised. You, you were the first guy to yeah, actually do that. Yeah, I was the first that. one. In fact, they call it the Santo Claus. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's kind of funny, actually. Yeah. But just so people know. Yeah, ten years in the majors, five with the Cubs, nineteen seventy-three, I think it is. Right, you were the first guy to say no. You want to trade me, but I'm not willing to accept the trade. Right, you've they put wanted on the to table. trade me. Uh, John Holland called me and trade me to the Angels uh, for uh, uh, three pitchers, and I said to John, "No, John, uh, I'm not going to move my family." And I was in business at that time, Chris. I had uh, pizzerias outside of baseball. I was making as much money. Uh, off the field as I was is, on the field. Is that, why you said, is, grand. is that why you said yes to the White Sox so you could stay uh, that's in That's why I said yes to the White Sox and stay in Chicago. Hey, Ron, can I ask, you know, people talk about, you know, a guy who's a Red Sox, then he goes to the Yankee. If a guy's a Yankee, then he goes to the Mets. What happened in the town when you get traded to the White Sox? Was there a line to Cubs fans then write you off, or was it? Uh, not at all. They did not write me off. Uh uh, I think they understood. They knew what I did for the 14 years with the Cubs, and I was still in Chicago. Chicago was, uh, uh, you know, my life. I mean, all my kids were born in Chicago, and I came up when I was just 20 years old and uh, uh, only had one year in the minor leagues, and I was a Cubby. I didn't want to leave, but I, I felt that uh, they wanted to make some changes because after 69, even though we were in it for the next few years, the uh, they started to break up the team, mm-hmm. and and I just felt I'll play two more years. So I had a two-year contract with the White Sox. John Allen was the owner. Chuck Tanner was the manager, and Chuck had said uh, that he loved to have me over there. And I said, Well, I'm not ready for DHing, and then uh, and I'm not blaming anybody, but uh, the first thing I did was DH, and I I knew that I was only going to play one year and retire, and from the beginning, from spring training, and then. Uh, we had a pretty good ball club, but didn't do well. So I walked into John Allen's office and I said, John, I said, I'm retiring. And he, he stood up and he said, Ron, don't you understand your con? You got another contract year for 130000 I said, I'm giving you back 130000 And he shook my hand and he said, no player has ever done that. And then I walked out. You felt good about it? Felt very good about it. I, I was ready. Uh, I, I feel, Chris, that... I was ready. I, I probably physically I could have played on, but mentally, uh, uh, once you lose it mentally, that love and that desire, and that's what moves you on. And and uh, I knew I, I I couldn't do what I used to do, and that was time to get out. And fortunately enough, uh, as I said, I was always worried about when baseball was over. Even though I spent my pretty pretty much my majority of my life in baseball. Uh, uh, I just always worried about it, and uh, because I had uh, looked at businesses during my career, and and uh, I was successful, and now I wasn't going to go from uh, you know a salary that in those days players probably the highest salary they'll ever make in those days. You know, it's not like today, uh, but uh, we had one-year contracts, but I was making as much money uh, off the field as I was on, so. Uh, that helped me make a decision. Too. Finishing up with Ron Sano tonight. Ron, I've got to ask you about a few of the people you were around in Chicago and then just a couple of other people in baseball at the time. 
when you came up, you're playing third base. Is Ernie still playing shortstop, or is he? Oh yes. Over? In fact, Ernie. Uh, in those days, uh, Chris, Ernie was the only guy that really talked to me because you know uh, there was only eight teams in the National League, eight in the American League, and every team had 20 minor league teams. And uh, so when a kid came up from the minor leagues, especially at my age at 20, you had to prove you could play. They didn't talk to you. You were taking somebody else's job that was a teammate of theirs. And once you proved that you could play, because when I came up, nobody came up and said, hey, nice, nice to have you here. But when I was sitting on the bench after hitting, I was in awe. Ernie sat next to me, and he said, uh, uh, you nervous, kid? And I said, oh, boy, am I ever. And he said, well, look at Bob Friend and Vernon Law as AAA pitchers. And I said, that's easy for you to say. <laughs> but he was uh, wonderful. And that, that Ernie really was a, a big reason that uh, I went with the Cubs because I used to watch him uh, on the game of the week in Wrigley Field and uh, – uh, so I was very excited to uh, something a little bit more magical about that team in that place than perhaps some of the other people that wanted you. Pardon me. Was there something a little bit more magical about the C on the jersey, Ernie Banks, Wrigley Field? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I, and it still is. Uh, I mean, I've been broadcasting for twelve years, and uh, I feel like I'm still on the field, which is so wonderful. Uh, uh, it, it's just a place that uh, you. you you be on the road for 10 days, you be tired, you come home, it, you move to another level in Wrigley Field. It's the greatest ballpark I've ever been in. Uh, and uh, there's so much electricity in that ballpark. What do you think about Leo DeRocher? I, I, uh, I respected Leo DeRocher. I don't think too many people liked Leo, but I respected him very much. Uh, I, I loved the way uh, he was. Uh, he was going to win under any conditions and uh we had our our times but we were both very competitive uh i thought he did a great job he's the one that turned us around he came up in 66 and we were all in awe of him and then uh uh he said he we're not a eighth place team we ended up 10th that year <laughs> but then the next year we ended up third i mean from then on that team started to get respect i could see the difference and billy williams and Billy's the best. Best left-handed hitter, Chris. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind. I hit behind him. Billy and I, in fact, I don't know if you know this, uh, played in double-A ball together. And Billy and I have the most games played as teammates in baseball. I did not know that. Yeah, over 2,000. Now, did you guys both uh, hit a big home run on the same day in the early 70s? Was there a historical significance to both of you getting to 20 home runs on the same day? or? Was that something that I read? I uh, don't recall that, but uh, th this guy was the best left-handed hitter I've ever seen. And this guy would walk to the plate, Billy, and he's a dear friend of mine. I mean, we're, we're very close. Our families are close, and we're together again. You know, this is what's so yeah. wonderful. He's, he's a coach here, and I'm broadcasting. But he would he would just always spit and then hit he, I don't care if the wind was blowing or not. He'd hit it. Well, actually, you know what? I, I was kind of right. September 19th, 1973. Uh, uh -huh. This is what it says. You guys both hit your 20th homer of the season. 8-6 win over Montreal. 325 for you. 376 for Williams on that date. You were celebrating more than 2,000 games together 
as teammates. So yes. you were right. You were together okay. for a long time. Okay. Now, now i got to ask you a couple other things as we finish up with Ron Sano and Ron. I do appreciate it. Oh, sure. The infamous uh, Black Cat incident, where were you on the bench in Shea Stadium? Oh, I was on deck. That cat came out of nowhere underneath the stands, evidently. I see this black cat. It walks around me. Do you understand? It's like taking a horseshoe. He comes out from the dugout. He walks around me. I watch him. Then he walks right to the dugout and looks at Leo DeRosa. Leo was standing on the end of the dugout and then goes underneath, back underneath. You guys are done at that point. Huh? You guys were done at that point. Well, (laughs) we weren't done at that point, but it was sure different. I mean, uh, it was something that you were going to think about. Now, do you think it was a plant? Do you think somebody in the Mets threw that cat out there? No. No, you just no, think I it happened. No, I think that cat <laughs> lived in that ballpark and just decided to come out at that particular time. Now, you, you can laugh about it now, and I've talked to a couple of your teammates. As a matter of fact, I don't think Billy, Billy Williams doesn't much laugh about this, I don't think. But 1969 did not work out the way that you guys thought it was going to. The what? It did not work out the way that you thought it was oh, going the, to. The, there was, as I told you, Chris, that we were the best team. There was no doubt about it. And uh, But it, look at that Met team, and you can say the pitching staff, but they had Cleon Jones and Tommy Agee mm-hmm. that could play every day for anybody. But you look at the rest of that ball club that just, they platooned all the time. Cranepool, Gary, Bobby File. and Oh, absolutely. I mean, there was just guys that... <laughs> We're not everyday players, and uh, after that year, uh, they they kind of broke up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the pitching was great. But also, what I felt is nobody realizes they won thirty five out of forty nine ball games the last month and a half. And they had to chase you down, and they did it. And they did it. Hey, Ron, let me ask you too, real quick. Leo DeRosa, the special shot heard around the world. I don't know if you had a chance to see it on HBO. No. Uh, talking about the 51 season, the yes. stealing signs. Oh, yeah, I've else. seen that. Um, yeah. The gentleman who brought that telescope over was actually a Chicago Cub who his son says was stealing signs out of the scoreboard in Wrigley. Any of that going on at no. all? There was none of that that I was aware of, and believe me when I tell you that. Uh, I know they talked about that, but think about this. it The scoreboard... And how were that far away, in a sense, that high, sure, you could, but there was no way we were getting signs I think the you, scoreboard. I think it would be easier to read the seams on the baseball than it would exactly. be to, to see a signal up in that board. And I was always there. a player, even though uh, uh, maybe somebody would pick up a sign, mm-hmm. I was a player that uh, uh, didn't want them. I, I always looked fastball and adjusted the curveball. I, I think if I knew what was coming, I'd be a little bit too anxious. And then it's also a great way to get popped in the head if somebody gives you the wrong Well, way. absolutely. Yeah. I, in those days, believe me, uh, you know, the, the knockdown pitch was very prevalent. If they thought you were stealing signs, how many times would you get hit? Oh, the, you, know, I, well, I, you know, I spent, Chris, uh, you know, hitting behind Billy Williams, and uh, I spent a lot of time in the dirt. <laughs> but that was out of respect. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the the pitchers in those days, and think about it, early especially, you're facing a good pitcher every fourth day, and you you got a guy throwing ninety plus up in your chin, and they knew how to do that, and uh, 
uh, you know, it was almost like once they did it, you could relax a little bit because you knew they weren't going to do it again. Because mm-hmm, they didn't want to waste the ball. It was just to make sure that you knew that this was part of their territory. That, that was intimidation. That's what kept. Uh, that's, to me, why there were, were not very many guys that hit 50 home runs. Well, and, and again, when I look at your numbers, Ron, the other thing to me is I don't know if you just got caught in a bad time, you know, before Schmidt. It just seems kind of strange because it was a pitcher's time and your slugging percentage and the consistency with the home runs. It really does seem like that should come into account a little bit more. And I'm not saying this because you're on. I do look at guys like Fred McGriff. What's his claim going to be? Will he have a shot? When I knew I was going to talk to you, I looked at your numbers and said, let me compare him to the guys he was playing with. Gold gloves, all-star games, consistency, the slugging percentage, being in the middle of a lineup that was a pretty good team and making sure a guy did his part. I think all of that stuff has to be included more than just one line that has every number on it. Yes, that's and and you know what I would think is important and is the consistency of your career and uh, it wasn't just one way. I, I I mean, if I didn't hit, I failed. Right. Uh, I did it both ways. Plus the fact I was an impact player. Hey, I, I led the league in walks four times. Which means there's a man on base to help his team do a little more damage on that day. That's right. Yeah, all right, Ron, let's finish up with this. Best pitcher you ever faced, who would it be? Uh, the, the, the greatest pitcher, I say, uh, uh, was Sandy Koufax. There was nobody. He was in a league by himself. Uh, on any given day, he could pitch a no-hitter. Were you okay that it, and I, okay is a relative term, were you okay if you had an 0-4 for four against him? More no, so, no, 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 no. But more so than you would be against a guy who you knew, as talented as you were, you should have a better day against. Well, see, I, I was one of these guys that uh, when you're a good hitter, you move it up a notch. When you're driving the, to the ballpark and Drysdale's pitching or Gibson or, or Marichal or Sandy Koufax, you know you have to go to mm-hmm. another level. You have to be at their level. So do it. Or else you know it's going to be a long night. That's right. All right. But what upset me was driving to the ballpark and knowing uh, who you're facing, knowing that he is not going to be difficult, but you go all for mm-hmm. four. It's called a comfortable collar. Yep. That bothered me more than anything else. Well, Ron, listen, it's been a pleasure. Continued good luck, good health. I know things are going your way with the outside world. Good luck with the stuff with the Cubs, and we'll hopefully talk to you maybe as the Cubs are making a well, playoff. I, I, I really feel, I want to say this, Chris, I really feel that this is the year because of the pitching staff. Uh, we're not hitting uh, as, as a, a team should be, but we've got, to me, the best pitching staff. And uh, if we stay healthy, we'll be there. All right, Ron. Listen, appreciate it very much. I do appreciate your honesty and your openness as well. Thanks a lot, Chris. Thanks, Ron. Have a great day. Right. Okay. Bye-bye. He epitomizes what being a Cub is as much as anybody who's ever worn a Cubs uniform. He's not pretty. He's not flashy. But he's substance. He's Chicago. He's a Cub. Look like us. He represented the Chicago mentality, the Chicago people. He's my hero. He was my hero as a kid. I mean, he's my earliest baseball memory. He gave people a thrill. There's never been a lot of that kind of entertainment in Wrigley Field. He belongs in the Hall of Fame. I voted for him. Ladies and gentlemen, one of the greatest Cubs of all time, Ron Santo. Hey, hey, holy mackerel, no doubt about it, the Cubs are Today. They're gonna pitch today, they're gonna feel today. Come what may, the Cubs are gonna win.
was told that they were going to retire my number, and I mean this sincerely, I thought I had to get into the Hall of Fame to have that done because this flag hanging there down the left field line means more to me than the Hall of Fame. That is my Hall of Fame. I know this. We got here this year. It couldn't have happened at a better time. And we're going to go all the way. I thank all of you. I love you. Hey, hey, holy mackerel. No doubt about it. The Cubs are on their way. The Cubs are going to hit today. They're going to pitch today. They're going to feel today. Come what may, the Cubs are going to win Chicago Cubs have come.